We're going to spend some time now looking at the scripture together. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to Jeremiah 28 and 29, the section that Autumn was just reading for us. We're going to look at this section. We're starting a new series in the scriptures, and we're calling this series, What to Do When the World Falls Apart. What to Do When the World Falls Apart. It's really interesting if you look at the statistics for the last couple of years, if you compare June of 2019 to June of 2020, anxiety and depression has quadrupled. It was about 10% reported in June of 2019, and it's about 40% now in the summer of 2020. Uh, We're worried and stressed out about a lot of different things. And for everybody, it's kind of something different, right? Some people are worried about injustice. Some people are worried about economic downturn of the market. Some people are worried about their physical health and pandemic. Some people are worried about um, civil unrest, racial strife, political divisiveness. Everybody's worried about different things. Some of you are, are worried about all of it at the same time, right? And what we have to see is that God gives us particular instructions when things are all falling apart. When everything is shaken, the Word of God stands secure for us to um, trust in, to look back to. And so we're going to be opening the Scriptures for the next 13 weeks. Today, we're going to do a little background of getting ready for the stories of the prophet Daniel. That'll be a 12-week series, but we're starting with an extra week today looking at Jeremiah 28 and 29. What we're going to see in Jeremiah 28 and 29 is what to do when the world falls apart. We get specific instructions from the prophet Jeremiah. God's people had been thrown into exile. Their world had been shattered. Everything had been broken for them. And Jeremiah gives them very specific instructions. And then what we're going to see in the life of Daniel and his friends is Daniel and his friends are going to be living that out. So we'll start with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is like, this is what you should do. And then Daniel is going to live it out for us. He's going to show us how these instructions can be lived uh, in wisdom. Before we read it, I want to just remember that we've always been a church, we've always been a place that recommends and honors honest lament. Honest lament, that is crying out to God. And we've talked about that a lot over the last six months, and I want to continue to encourage that. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, who wrote this prophecy named after him, also wrote the book of Lamentations, right? So Jeremiah supports lament. He supports crying out to God. But then there comes a point where we're like, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this, right? We continue to cry out to God. We continue to honestly pray. But what are the next steps that we can take as a society when everything seems so fractured and so broken? So I'm going to read for us to start off with from Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 I'm going to read verse 1, and then I'm going to read verse 10 and 11. Just to get us started, then we're going to look at more of this as we move through it this morning. So verse 1, Jeremiah 29, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I'm going to skip down to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So just in those three verses, we see some big ideas that are very central to what it means to be a people of faith, that there is real judgment on our sin. We're broken. We've done wrong. We haven't loved each other like we should. We haven't served righteousness as we should. And yet God promises, I am a God who has a future and a hope for you. These two twin facts are held together in the Christian faith in a way in which they are not in any other world religion. God is a God of judgment that says sin is wrong. Wickedness is wrong. It will be judged. He's also a God of grace. He says, I have plans for you. I have hope for you. I have love for you, grace for you. We see most fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but we see all of this even foreshadowed way back in the stories of Jeremiah and Daniel. Let me pray for us, and then we'll try to unpack this in more detail. God, we thank you for your love for us that we've seen in Christ, but we recognize that we drift from that reality and we need constant reminders. And so we come back to your word, we, we open it to study it, trying to discern from you, God, what to do next. Everything seems to be turned upside down. We're confused. Lord, we pray that you would guide us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us here, that you would guard my voice, that you would guard our thoughts from coming up with stuff on our own, but that we would be a people that listens to you. And because of that, we'd be a people that love others and show your grace to others. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a point of cross-reference, um, Jesus made it very clear in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So again, Jesus promises us a world of judgment and difficulty and hard stuff, and yet he also promises us that we can have hope. We can take heart because he's overcome the world. So a lot of what we're going to look at in this series is what does it mean to take heart in Jesus in a world of trouble? So it's very acute right now. We live in a world of trouble, of difficulty, of pain, of suffering, of chaos. What does it mean to take heart in Jesus? And we see a great example in the Daniel stories and a great example in the instructions that Jeremiah the prophet gives in Jeremiah 28 and 29. There's also a little kind of technicality we need to deal with, and that is that specifically Deuteronomy 28, covenant instructions with God's people Israel in the land of Judah made it very clear that if they disobeyed God, they would be exiled out of their country. There were specific stipulations, specific rules. We're now under the new covenant. We're, we're not the people of Israel in the same sense, right? There's a difference between us and them. There's some discontinuity there. There's a lot of sameness, right? At that we're the people of God and we love the same God and we have faith in him like they did, but there's definitely a difference. And so we have to recognize that up front and say, okay, we're not the exiles that were sent into Babylon, right? Like, so how does that apply to us? Peter, though, says that as we are still in this world of trouble, waiting for Jesus to return, we are a type of exile, right? So we're not those exiles in 600 BC in Babylon, but we are exiles, meaning we're not really in our true home. A lot of different words for that in Christian history, pilgrims, sojourners, we're waiting for the new Jerusalem to come down and for the new heavens and the new earth. We're waiting for the Romans 8 vision of everything to be made right. We're groaning and longing for God to finish what he started. 
And so another kind of parallel, parallel to look at is in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives these predictions about the end times, right? And historically, Christians all debate those end times predictions because they're very confusing. They're very confusing and hard to understand. But then Jesus gives incredibly clear instructions at the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25. He says, this is how you should live while you're waiting for me to come back. It's going to seem like a long, long time, and you're going to be tempted to give up and start living for yourself. But don't do that. Expect that I could come back at any time. Love me, trust me, live for my return, and live in a way in which you serve those around you. Very clear. I encourage you to go back and read that, chapter 24 and 25. Kind of soak up all the confusing stuff about the end of the world and how it's hard to tell what he's talking about there. And then soak up the clear directions of, this is how you wait for me. This is what it looks like. This is what to do when the world falls apart. So 1 Peter 2 is the other reference about us being exiles. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. One more cross-reference and then we'll move on to Jeremiah 28.29 and that is Luke 13. In Luke 13, a couple of disasters take place People are confused about that. You know, bad things happened. Some people got murdered by a wicked king. A tower fell on some people and they died. And Jesus clarified, he's like, don't think that they were worse sinners than anyone else. Jesus says, when bad things happen, don't think that they were worse sinners than anyone else. Think about it this way. We're all sinners that deserve judgment. That's a humbling. All people deserve judgment. And that means every breath, every day is of grace. All right, so three things we're going to see in Jeremiah 28 and 29 as we unpack this. One, the first thing we should do when the world falls apart, after we've gotten through the the lament, the grief, right? We continue that, that's ongoing. First thing we should do is listen to God's word. Listen to God's word. And we're going to pick apart a little of the story in Jeremiah 28 that Autumn read for us. We're going to pick that apart and, and see how we should listen to God's word. Second thing we're going to see is that we should build a normal life. We're given very specific instructions, or at least the exiles are given very specific instructions that overlap with what we're told in the New Testament as well. We are to build a normal life. And then the third thing we'll see is that we should spend because of God's grace. We should spend our our money, our resources, our time because of God's grace. Okay, so first thing we'll see is that we should listen to God's word. Listen to God's word. I would add, uh, as kind of a parenthetical aside maybe, listen to God's word, not social media. How about that? Listen to God's word, not social media. We should listen to God's word. Uh, Brett McCracken wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition, I believe it was August 18th, it was just like last week, and he said that the typical believer spends about two hours a week paying attention to God's word and about 90 hours a week paying attention to social media, movies, Netflix, etc. Just think about that. That's the normal life. We are now being formed by other voices. Now, I want to be clear. I, I, don't, I don't want to advocate a kind of fundamentalism that says we can't listen to anybody ever except for God's word. But I do want us to think about who are we really listening to? Are we devoting time to listen and pay attention to God's word? That's where I think 
a lot of this starts. We need to listen to God's word. In Jeremiah 28, a false prophet named Hananiah says to the exiles of Babylon that they would come back in two years and that everything would be fine. Now, another aside here, it's an interesting contrast. Jeremiah, as a true prophet, was proclaiming God's word, and it was worse than the prophecy of the false prophet. Now, that is often a contradiction, right? Often the false prophets say sweet, good things that tickle our ears, that make us feel better. But I want to be clear that that's not the way you determine what's true and what's not, okay? That's not like the test. Oh, is it bad news? Then it's true. And if it's good news, then it's not. That's not the test, okay? But it is interesting to note that often false prophets say sweet things that flatter us, okay? That's just something to note, to keep your mind on. The real test of a false prophet and a true prophet biblically is one of them says stuff that doesn't come true. The other one says stuff that does come true. So that one is the true prophet. So in Jeremiah 28, Hananiah said this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also Bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. It's really interesting that he's using this word, yoke. It would have been a common term uh, of submission, of being a servant or a slave of this outside king, Nebuchadnezzar. I grabbed a picture of a yoke here just to clarify. I think we saw a yoke earlier when Autumn was reading the story, but Again, the yoke is a wooden bar that animals would carry on their neck, on their shoulders as they pulled um, carts, plows, machinery, helping a farmer work the field. What's really interesting is that God told Jeremiah, the true prophet, to wear a yoke around Jerusalem, around Judah. As he was proclaiming God's word, he was symbolizing it, right? He was like a performance artist in a sense. He's showing the truth of his prophecy and speaking it. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar is going to put us into submission. We're going to become exiles. We're going to be conquered, and we're going to carry this yoke. We're going to have to serve this other king. And so he was symbolizing that by wearing this yoke around constantly, and he wore it for a long time. So when Hananiah, the false prophet, says, God's going to break the yoke, he's basically speaking directly against Jeremiah, saying, that's not true. And then what happens is they have a conflict. There's some back and forth. I'm kind of skipping over. I encourage you to go back and read the whole story in Jeremiah 28. They have some conflict. And in this really dramatic political theater, Hananiah grabs the yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders and he smashes it to the ground. What do you think the people watching were thinking? Well, they were thinking, number one, I like Hananiah's story better than Jeremiah's. Number two, it kind of looks like Hananiah just kicked Jeremiah's butt, right? Like, so Hananiah must be right. The people were going to be incredibly tempted to follow Hananiah, but God in his kindness clarified for them, gave more messages through Jeremiah, but then just to make sure the people got it, Hananiah died two months later. Um, And so God was clarifying for the people, don't listen to this guy, listen to this guy. There was a contrast. One said, within two years, everything's going to be fine. The other said, no, it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be a long time. Again, the contrast between truth and falsehood is not hard and easy message, but there is often this temptation in untrue messages to listen to something that flatters us and makes us feel better. 
the good news of the gospel comes with bad news, that we're broken. Here's the temptation that we face, and that I think we, all people face, all tribes face, all countries face, all religions face. And that temptation is to say, you know, the real problem with the world is those people out there. That's this temptation that feeds our ego, right? I'm not the problem. It's those people over there. If those people could get their stuff together, everything would be okay. I'm on the good team, right? Christianity says no human beings are on the good team. There is no good team, only God. Human beings have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus' forgiveness. We all need a Savior who came and took our sins upon himself, who carried that yoke of sin for us, who took our sin and gives us his resurrection life, gives us his goodness as a free gift. So my first point is when the world falls apart, we should listen to God's word. We should listen to God's word. And I just want to recognize, I understand a lot of you are skeptics. We're glad you're here. We're a place that speaks God's word, both for the curious and the committed. So we're committed to continue to be a safe place for those of you that are merely curious, that are trying to figure this out. Um, So I just want you to know that I know there's never really been a time when human beings have all agreed on how we can listen to God's word and where it's found. We would say that we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself and that he is worth listening to. So I encourage you, if you continue to have questions about this book, to focus on Jesus himself. Because the scripture even says it that way. It says, God's spoken in all these different ways, but now, in these last days, he's speaking to us through his son. So the scripture puts this weight on Jesus. He's often called the word of God. He's like the, he's like the embodiment of this word himself. So many people have questions about all 66 books and some of the weird things and some of the weird stories, right? Focus on Jesus. If you're a skeptic, focus on Jesus. And I would encourage you to listen to God's word by listening to Jesus first. Read the gospels, get to know Jesus personally. But I would also say that there are answers to the questions that we have about this book. Number one, we would say it's the most historically reliable ancient book that exists. Number two, we would say it's the most carefully preserved and copied ancient book that exists. And finally, number three, I would say it is the most coherent, cohesive, unified ancient library of literature that's ever existed. Because we, we talk about it as one book because we're spoiled and have it all bound together, but it's 66 books that all tell one story. And that right there is, is amazing and supernatural. So those are just some answers. I know there are a lot more questions. I'm really skimming over the questions you might have about God's Word, but I would say begin new habits of listening to God's Word, focusing on Jesus, who is said to be God's Word himself. Secondly, I would say for those of you that are already committed to God's Word, consider what Brett McCracken said. Are you spending nine, 90 hours listening to everything else and a couple hours a week listening to God's Word? When society falls apart, when all of our habits are broken, it's a great time to rebuild new habits, to rebuild habits of beginning your day and ending your day with focusing on God's Word. And I would encourage you to use whatever tools are at your disposal. I spoke last week about a prayer subscription you could get, MatthewHenry.org, where they'll send you a daily email of scriptures you can pray through. Um, You can listen to 
the Bible on audio. That's really helpful to me. I, I find sometimes I kind of hear and understand better when I'm listening than when I'm actually reading with my eyes. Um, there are a lot of different ways to do it, but let's spend some time reshaping our, our habits around God's Word, setting aside time to meditate on Scripture, to listen to Scripture, to memorize Scripture, to pray through Scripture. And I would also add to that perhaps times of setting boundaries and fasting from other media. Is it always right there? Are you, are you always going to it? Or do you, do you put boundaries around the other media in your life? And then one more little application with listening to God's Word, and that is to get outside. Um, the Scripture is clear that there is like the specific revelation of God's Word in Scripture, and then there's the general revelation of God's truth in creation. So the Scripture says we should get outside. The Proverbs say we should get outside. We should observe the ants. We should look at nature. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. There's no place in the world where God's voice is not heard because the heavens themselves say, listen to God, pay attention to who he is. So I would say not only pay attention to special revelation, we call it God's word, but also the general revelation. Get outside, pay attention to what God has to say outdoors. Okay, the next point I want us to see is that we should build a normal life. Here we'll look at Jeremiah 29 verses 5 through 7. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. Build a normal life. Don't give up. And I want to just recognize right now uh, a lot of the weariness that a lot of us are feeling are, I want to go back to normal life and I can't, right? So it might be frustrating. I'm saying build a normal life. And you're like, nothing's normal right now, right? So let's look at what Jeremiah says. These are the specific instructions he gave to the exiles, uh, starting in verse... Where is it? Verse 5. So verse 5 through 7, he says this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Isn't that amazing? As, as you build a healthy life, and as you seek the health of your neighbors and the city that you're called to, those things will work together. As you seek the health of your city, that will actually increase your health. If you seek the shalom, the peace of your city, that will increase your peace, your shalom. As you try to seek the welfare of others, that will increase your own welfare. And the things that he says here are very simple. And so the contrast would be, what do you think? What's the temptation that the exiles would have? Let's historically go back to them, right? Well, historically, they've been told, oh, you'll be brought back in two years, right? So they might have decided to put their entire lives on hold. And I think that's a temptation a lot of us face right now. Yeah, I'll I'll do, you know, deep, important things later, but right now I'm just kind of waiting. I'm just kind of waiting for life to get back to normal. God says, no, start where you are and build a new normal today. Uh, build homes, plant trees, plant gardens, get married, live your normal life as much as you can. Obviously, we have weird limitations right now, right? But, but move on. Do life. Have children. Do the boring human things that humans have always done to the glory of God. And remember, we're under a command, and we can mix this up because we're in a branch of Christianity that really focuses on proclaiming the gospel, which is important and good, right? The Great Commission are the final words that Jesus gave to his church in uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. 
He, he tells us that he's been given all authority and he's sending us out to make disciples, to multiply followers of Jesus, to tell everybody about him, to baptize people in his name, to teach them to obey Jesus and everything. But what I would say is doing that, helping people come to find forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Jesus is then what frees people to live a normal life, right? Because when, when we're hiding from God or running from God or just trying to fulfill ourselves through pursuing, you know, following our own hearts and just chasing pleasure, or we're in this kind of legalistic backbiting where we think we're earning God's approval by being better than our neighbor, either of those systems really result in us not being able to live a normal life. But if we come into the freedom of knowing we are sons and daughters of God, that he, he loves us through Christ, that he delights in you, he sees you as beautiful, as perfect as his own son, if you come to that faith relationship with Jesus, that sets you free to live a normal life, to plant trees, to make meals, to change diapers, to love your neighbors, to work hard at your job, to do these simple human things that bring glory to God and extend his name and fame and and actually extend the welfare of the neighborhood, the city, uh, the people around you. So this is a human uh, command that we live under, Genesis one twenty eight. In Genesis 2.15, one says to multiply, have dominion. The other says to work the garden paradise, to keep it, to extend it. So we get this picture in Genesis that human beings are designed to spread the goodness of God, to spread paradise. Right now, you and I feel like the world is a broken wilderness. And I say, yep, that's true. (laughs) You are right. And our hope in the grace of God is the only thing that can set free our hearts to be able to do the hard work of rebuilding and re-extending paradise in this world. And so I have a picture here I found of some people planting a tree. Um, It's said that Martin Luther was asked, if you were told that the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? And Luther said, probably plant a tree. Now, Luther scholars have studied this and said, we can't actually find anywhere that Luther said that, right? Um, So I just want to be clear, be fair. We don't really know that Luther said that or not. It might be legendary. But it does kind of seem like the kind of thing Luther would say, right? If the world was ending tomorrow, what would you do? Well, you'd live a normal life, right? What does normal look like? What does it look like for you to invest in the here and now for the glory of God? That is what God built us for. And so the church has always been about the normal life of building cities and schools and homes and families and loving our neighbors and the supernatural life of calling people to repentance in Jesus. And those two things work together. Again, apart from genuine faith in Jesus, we don't work right as humans. We just live for ourselves and we tear up this world, right? That's the story of Genesis. Adam and Eve said, no, we'd rather have the blessings without God. We want to be our own gods. And that plunged the world into sin and brokenness. So how do, we, how do we focus this? How do we apply this? Uh, well, with all the political divisiveness a lot, I've really loved this phrase that, that you hear sometimes, that all politics is local. A lot of us care way too much about global politics and national politics, but we don't care at all about our city and our county. What does it look like for you to get more involved in the city and county, to make it a better city and county, to make it healthier? Because if we've got all these corrupt politicians at the state and national level, where do they come from? Well, they come from local politicians, right? 
So what would it mean, what would it look like for us to get more involved at the local level to make our city a healthier place where God is honored and where we love each other well? I would say that looks like getting involved in the city, understanding how the city works. Also, local schools. What does it mean to get involved in the local schools? A lot of you are, already are. Thank you for caring in that way. Our neighbors. What does it look like to get involved just in our neighborhood? Do you even know your neighbors? That's been one of the biggest blessings of the coronavirus is, is like more often we're out going for walks and we're meeting more of our neighbors. It's pretty cool, right? Our life before, we were way too important and busy to meet our neighbors. That's, I'm being facetious. Now life has slowed down and we're taking more walks. Well, there's been this like 120 degree weather thing that slowed that down a little bit. But in the spring, we were taking tons of walks, right? Morning, noon, and night and meeting our neighbors. What would it look like if every Christian knew all their neighbors and loved them and served them? And then finally, the home. Uh, Again, the coronavirus has made us feel like captives in a way, which has been bad, but there's also been this really beautiful opportunity for us to focus our worship and our care on our homes. What does it look like for us to love and serve our roommates well, our family well? What would that look like for us to be more devoted to caring for home life? 1 Thessalonians 4.11 is a great cross-reference. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and 12 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So it's interesting extremes that we're being pushed to politically right now, two extremes. One extreme is that taxation is wrong. The other extreme is that private property is wrong. The biblical balance has always been something in between where we are committed to developing our private property and then sharing with others in need. This biblical balance. What does it look like for us to build homes, plant gardens, extend our families, and seek the welfare of the city, to pray for the city, to pray for the, the Babylon that we live in? What does Babylon symbolize in the, in the Bible? Babylon symbolizes a world system, a nation state that is opposed to God. What does it look like for us to be good citizens in the Babylon that God has called us to? Whatever that looks like. What does it look like for us to be faithful in a world that's not faithful? I think there's this tricky Christian balance that we see often where it's like we don't put all of our hope in the here and now, but we also don't become so cynical that we've completely pulled out of the here and now. What does it look like to be those kinds of faithful citizens that are invested in love but aren't idolatrously bound to the here and now? Our true hope is our citizenship in heaven. And this brings us to the last point, spend because of God's grace. Spend because of God's grace. And we're going to read verses 10, 11, and 12 now, um, 10 through 13 of Jeremiah 29. This verse is often taken as a prosperity gospel kind of verse. The prosperity gospel is one that says, if you have enough faith, then everything will turn out rosy in your life. If you have enough faith and you plant some seeds of faith, then you'll be rich and you'll prosper. You'll have a lot of welfare. You'll have a lot of prosperity, depending on the translation of the text here. So I want to contrast that and say, no, we actually spend, we actually care because of God's grace. And this is a great verse that reminds us of God's grace, and it overlays really beautifully with Jesus' instructions in uh, Matthew chapter 25. So let's look at the text here. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 13. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you 
and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Um, so again, bad news, good news, right? I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to take care of you, but it's going to be 70 years. It's going to be a long, painful trial. The way Jesus was wording it when he was leaving his followers, he was, he was saying, there's going to be this temptation to think I'm not coming back. He's like, I, I'm going to return. You've got to be ready for me to return, but it's going to feel like I'm not coming back. That's the tension we live with. And it was very similar for those in the Babylonian exile. It's like you're going to be tempted to feel like it's not going to happen because it's going to be 70 years, right? People are going to die before I come back. But I am. I'm, I'm going to bring you back. So verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is such a beautiful verse to remind us of God's heart for us. And Christians sometimes criticize this verse being taken in an overly general way, right? In a prosperity gospel way, in a kind of like magic fairy dust way of everything's going to be fine because God has good plans for me, right? Well, sometimes you still have to go through 70 years of hardship. Sometimes you still have to wait a few thousand years for Jesus to return. But this does reassure us of God's posture, his gracious heart towards us. It is true. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He promises to us. Jeremiah later gives beautiful promises of the new covenant that are specifically fulfilled in Jesus in Jeremiah 31. I encourage you to go read that on your own time. But here, I want to make the point that we are called on to spend because of God's grace. Jeremiah 29.10 gives us God's grace. Jeremiah 29.10.11 gives us God's grace. It's showing us God's plans for us, God's hope for us. And then the way this is described in Matthew 25 in what is famously called the parable of the talents, it's described kind of negatively. It's like the flip side of it. And the way Jesus describes it in the parable of the talents is if we don't believe that God is gracious, you know what we're going to do? We're going to think of him as evil and unfair, and that's going to drive us to bury our talents. And so Jesus gives a, a negative parable in Matthew 25. So that's my question for you. Where are you right now? What's your heart posture towards God? Do you see him as gracious to you? Do you see him as a God who loves you? Do you see him as a God who, though you deserved punishment, he took the punishment on himself? Though you were without life, he gives you freely his resurrection life through Jesus? Or do you see him as a God who is completely unfair, who takes what doesn't belong to him? And that's the story in the parable of the talents. So there are people that spend their lives, their talents, their resources, their time, their gifts with reckless abandon because God is gracious. And then there are others who are terrified and say, God's not fair. He's out to get me. Life's not fair. So they live as misers. They bury their talent. They hide from God. Which life are you living? And if you're living the life of the one who buries their talent, it's never too late to repent and say, God, forgive me. I've been burying my talent, but I see now that you're gracious. I see that through the story of Jesus. I see that through the reminder of Jeremiah 29, 11, the promise where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future and a hope. I grabbed a picture here to try to illustrate 
what this looks like. These are Da Vinci's uh, sketches of body parts, right? So kind of a weird uh, anatomy lesson. The Apostle Paul says that we are all a different part of Jesus's body. Paul says this in Romans 12. Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians 12. He says that God's people are all Jesus's hands and feet in the world. You might be a toe, you might be a knee, you might be a shin, you might be an elbow in the body of Christ, but we're Jesus's body in the world. And so we spend our resources because of his grace, because he's been good to us, because we're convinced now that God will take care of us. Some of my favorite authors compare the orphan mentality to the sonship mentality. Do you see yourself as an orphan who has not been adopted, or do you see yourself as one who has been adopted and now is a son or a daughter, and now has family that loves you? We have to put aside our our old orphan habits of stealing and scrapping and hurting others to get ahead and say, you know what? My heavenly father is going to take care of me. And because of his grace, I can now spend what he's given me for his glory, for his purposes. I can spend my money. I can spend my talents. I can spend my time. I can care for people. Even when it seems like a waste of time because I got more to get done, right? Now I can give myself to people because God is in that. I can spend my money on ministry. Even though it feels like the world is so evil and so broken, what difference does it make? No, I can spend my money on ministry to proclaim the word of God, to feed the hungry, because I believe that shows God's heart to the world. I believe it's worth it. And that's what Jesus has left me to do in this world. If God is gracious, we can take risks for him. We can trust that even in 70 years of pain and exile, that he knows the plans that he has for us. Plans for a future and a hope. Plans for welfare and not for evil. So I want to wrap up here. What do we do when the world falls apart? What do we do when the world falls apart? Or as we are watching the world fall apart? Again, we've always been a place that honestly encourages lament and grieving. And you got plenty of material with Jeremiah cross-references, my wife and I were talking about the other day, we're in his lamentations, in his tears and pain to God. He's talking about the yoke, the burden of sin, and how terrible that is. It is right and good to read the Psalms, to read lamentations, and to be a people that honestly lament to God, that say, how long, O Lord? But also to recognize he's given us instructions. He's given us Marching orders. He's given us stuff to do. Cross-reference Jeremiah 29 with Matthew 25 and recognize. He said, you're going to feel like giving up in both places, but don't give up. Trust in God's grace and continue to move forward. Listen to God's word and be reminded that Hebrews 1 makes it real clear that God in the past has spoken in, in many ways. And yet in these last days, he speaks to us through his son. Listen to God's word. Set aside time. Build boundaries habits and routines in your life to focus on God's word. Secondly, build a normal life in spite of the lack of normalcy, right? Invest in other human beings, invest in your work, invest in your neighborhood, invest in your home, and pray for the welfare of your city. As you invest in your own, that gives you uh, overflow to invest in others. 
And then finally, spend because of God's grace. Don't bury your talent, but remember the heart of God expressed for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's people got to see a, a glimpse, a foretaste of God's overflowing grace in their return from exile 70 years after these events. But they saw it most fully fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now we wait to see it even more fully fulfilled in the tying up of all things when Jesus returns. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and that you have given us simple things that we can do. God, we do continue to cry out with tears of pain and frustration. How long, O Lord? But we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would empower us to be a people who devote ourselves to listen to your word, who devote ourselves to to build a normal life for your glory, and who devote ourselves to spend and to risk what you've given us because of your grace to us. We pray that you'd be honored in our lives in that way. Help us to be a supernatural people that live by your spirit, not by the powers of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.